Good morning. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to John. We're back in our series in John this morning, and we are in John chapter 13. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 21 to 38 on this Lord's Day. John 13, verses 21 to 38. I hope you've turned there with me, and I hope you'll follow along as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help today. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that we would be able to understand what you have revealed in your word. We pray for eyes to see and hearts to believe. We pray for conviction of sin where necessary. We pray for encouragement of faith where necessary. We pray, Father, for the bearing of spiritual fruit. All of these things only you can do. So we are asking you for a spiritual miracle in our midst that you, God, would bear fruit through your word, applied by your spirit, so that we would grow to be more like Christ. We cannot do this on our own. No sermon is sufficient to do this. Help us, God. We plead for your help. And we do so confident that you hear us because of Jesus Christ who is seated at your right hand reigning over all things. And in his name we pray. Amen. Where are we in John's gospel? 
It's been several weeks since we have been in the Gospel of John. So a short review is probably the best introduction to today's text. Where are we in John's Gospel? John 13 is a turning point in this book. Prior to chapter 13, the focus of the narrative has been Jesus' public ministry, both in word and in deed. Jesus teaches with divine authority, and he reveals his divine identity through his signs. That's why the first half of the Gospel of John is sometimes called the book of signs. The focus is on Jesus' mighty deeds that confirm his authoritative word. But John 13 is the turning point. No longer do we see Jesus engaged in public ministry among the crowds. Now, the focus of Jesus' ministry narrows quite a bit. From the crowds at large to the twelve. The focus narrows. Why the shift? Because Jesus is preparing his disciples for, for what will occur in Jerusalem. That's the turning point in John's Gospel. The book of signs is complete, and the book of glory has begun. John chapter 13, the book of glory. In fact, that emphasis on glory is present in our text. Did you notice verse 30, where Jesus interprets the entire moment there in the the upper room? What does Jesus say is happening? Verse 30, now is the Son of Man glorified. That's where we are in the gospel according to John. We have begun the book of glory. And yet, if this is the book of glory, it begins in a strange way, doesn't it? Think about the first scene in this chapter. What does Jesus, the glorified one, do? He washes feet like a servant. That's a strange picture of glory. Or consider our text. Notice how our passage is bookended with two ominous predictions. On the front end, Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal. And on the back end, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Again, for the book of glory, things are not off to a very glorious start, are they? Servanthood, betrayal, denial. What kind of glory is this? If this is the glory that Jesus receives, I'm not sure that I want to follow him. And friends, I'll argue that that is precisely the purpose of this passage. The book of glory begins as it does because we need our view of glory corrected. We tend to think of glory in terms of triumph, fulfillment, power, notoriety, That's why the gospel sounds so foreign to us. Because our perspective on glory is shaped more by the world than it is by the gospel. And that's why the glory of this passage sounds so strange. Servanthood, denial, betrayal. Who wants that? The problem's not with the passage. The problem's with us. We've been shaped by the wrong categories. The world's categories. And so in this passage, the beginning of the book of glory, Jesus is exposing us. He is correcting us so that our understanding of glory is reshaped by the cross. 
Understand, friends, this is how the Bible works. When you read the Bible, the Bible reads you. This is how Scripture works. When we open up the Scripture to interpret it, the Scripture opens us up and interprets us, exposing our lives, showing us the real allegiance of our hearts, and pointing out where it is that we need our minds to be transformed by the gospel. That's what happens in John 13. That's why it sounds so strange to us. Because we're shaped more by the world than we are by the gospel. And so this this strange text of glory is calling us out of conformity to the world. Where all of us live most of the time. It's calling us out of conformity to the world. And it is calling us into the glory of the cross. A glory that looks very strange to the world. So that's where we are in John 13. We're in the book of glory. And that's where we're going today. We are going away from these faulty views of glory that have shaped us. And we are going towards glory according to Jesus. That's where we're going. Specifically, there are two perspectives on glory in this text that ought to reshape how we think, how we live, what we love, and what we desire. Two perspectives on glory that ought to reshape us. The first has to do with glory and darkness. And the second has to do with glory and love of all things. So two perspectives on glory from John 13. Let's think about each one in more detail. We start in verses 21 to 31 with the first perspective. Christ's glory is magnified through darkness. Christ's glory is magnified through darkness. As the scene begins, Jesus and his disciples remain in the upper room where Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. It was a humble act of care for the disciples. But very quickly, the tone of the evening change, uh, changes. How will Jesus be repaid for his humility and his care? With betrayal. Look again, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Can you imagine this? We know the story, so we tend to skip past this part and just read on without reflecting very much. But can you imagine this? One of the twelve, one who has walked with Jesus and heard his teaching and seen his mighty deeds, one who just had his own feet washed by the Master, one of these men will turn against the Lord. This is arguably the darkest act in human history. It wouldn't necessarily surprise us if one of the Pharisees betrayed Jesus. They've been opposed to him the whole time. But one of the twelve? It's shocking. It's shocking. When the end comes for Jesus, it will not be an enemy who betrays him. It will be his friend, a disciple. It is shockingly dark. The darkest act in human history. And it's shocking to Jesus Notice in verse 21 that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. The sense here is to be unsettled, to be in turmoil. Humanly speaking, this is the natural response. How would you or I respond if one of our friends betrayed us and stabbed us in the back? We would be troubled, wouldn't we? 
And so is Jesus. Remember, he is like us in every way, yet without sin. And so, robed as he is in frail human flesh, Jesus is troubled by the prospect of betrayal. The disciples are shocked too. Verse 22, they look around in disbelief. They can't fathom who it would be. Notice that no one suspects Judas Iscariot. That speaks to the darkness of Judas's action. He has hid his intentions the whole time. It's not like the other disciples are sitting there elbowing one another saying, it's that guy, remember him? He's a snake. They don't know. No one suspects Judas. The disciples don't have a clue who it will be. It's dark. So Peter, as he is prone to do, takes action. You can always leave it to Peter to get something done, even if it's the wrong thing. Peter takes action. The disciple whom Jesus loves, in verse 23, is most likely John, the author of this gospel. That's how John refers to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's not to exclude the other disciples. That's John's way of telling you how humbled he is to be a follower of Christ. Why is John sitting next to Jesus? Not because of John's worth, but because of Jesus' love. That's what he means by the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a humble statement from John. So Peter sees John sitting next to Jesus, and Peter urges John to, get, to ask Jesus the question that everyone is wondering. John complies, verse 25. He leans back with some level of privacy, and John asks, Lord, who is it? And Jesus, without hesitation, gives John the answer. Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now don't rush past too quick. Right there in that moment, Jesus is holding out that morsel of bread. It is a sign of fellowship, a shared meal. Don't rush past. Right here at this moment, Judas can turn from the darkness if he sees the fellowship held out in that morsel of bread. And he does and he takes it. And so the stage gets set for the darkest act in human history. And terrifyingly quick, the darkness overwhelms Judas's life. Notice verse 27. After Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. What are we to make of this? Satan entered into Judas. Did the devil make Judas do it? Is Judas responsible for his action or is he the victim of some satanic scheme? Well, if you look at the end of the scene, verse 30, you find some help. Verse 30 provides clarity on both Judas's decision and Satan's role. Listen again, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. And it was night, John says. If you've been with us through our study of John's gospel, then you know how often the apostle uses physical images to convey spiritual truths. One of John's favorite images is light versus darkness. Light is connected with God, with truth, with belief, and ultimately with the word, Jesus Christ. So John chapter 1, verse 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Darkness, on the other hand, stands for unbelief, 
evil, wickedness, opposition to God. John has been very clear that every person comes into this world enslaved to darkness. John chapter 3 verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, take that imagery of light and dark and apply it to our passage, verse 30. When John tells us in verse 30 that it's night, he is not simply setting the scene. He is interpreting Judas. Judas goes out into the night because he belongs to the night. Judas does not trust the light of the world. Judas loves darkness. And so he goes where he belongs, into the darkness. Why does Judas love darkness? Because his heart is evil. His deeds are wicked. Just like John told us back in chapter 3. So did the devil make Judas betray Jesus? Did the devil make him do it? No. Satan does not have nearly that level of sovereignty. No. Judas betrays Jesus because Judas loves sin more than God. He betrays Jesus because he loves the darkness more than the light. Satan's involvement is amplifying what's already present in Judas' heart, opposition to God and to his Christ. Friends, this is how sin works. When you give in to sin, that one step, the nature of sin is to take you ten steps further. Judas goes out into the night and Satan says, come deeper into the night. Satan doesn't make him do anything. But he does amplify the evil that's in his heart. There's a warning there not to toy around with sin. So verse 30 is very significant. Verse 30 is very significant. And it was night. The darkest act in human history is about to take place. And it's carried out by a man whose heart loves darkness more than the light. Where is the glory in this? We began the sermon by talking about glory, but so far it's nothing but darkness. Where's the glory? That's the right question that you ought to be asking when you're reading the passage. Where's the glory? There's a hint of it in verse 27. Verse 27 is a terrible statement of Satan amplifying Judas' wickedness, but notice who else is acting in verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. We noted Jesus' humanity earlier in verse 21, that he was troubled by the prospect of being betrayed. Now we see the other side of Jesus Christ, his deity. As the Lord of history, Jesus commands Judas to do his wicked act. Think about that. Judas does not get the drop on Jesus. Jesus commands Judas to do what he goes to do. The Lord is not caught off guard in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord Jesus knows precisely what Judas plans to do. And on some level, on some level, Jesus allows, he even commands Judas to do it. What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this who can command not only his followers, but also his enemies? What kind of man is this? The answer is one who is fully God. 
That's the kind of man, one who is also fully God. As the sovereign Lord, Jesus, not Judas, is in control of history. Jesus, not Judas, determines the course of his days. That's why I say verse 27 is a hint of glory. Because Jesus is not only troubled by the prospect of betrayal, he's also sovereign over the betrayal. He commands Judas to act. That hint of glory becomes a blazing display in verse 31. I take the transition from verse 30 to verse 31 to be one of the more significant moments in John's gospel. Let's pick it up in verse 30 and read through verse 31 again. And as we do so, I want you to pay attention to the transition from darkness to glory. 30 to 31. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That's a stunning transition from verse 30 to verse 31. What does Judas go out to do? To betray Jesus. And where will that betrayal end? At the cross, where the Son of God is hung in open shame to die like a criminal. You would think that this is the moment where glory is eclipsed, right? You would think that this is the moment where God's plan is thwarted and all of heaven begins to scramble to find a plan B. You would think. But now, Jesus says, now, in this very night of wicked darkness, now, as events are set in motion that lead to his death, now, Jesus declares, he is glorified and the Father is glorified in him. Brothers and sisters, do you see the connection here between darkness and glory? It's astonishing. Judas's dark plot does not derail the glory of Christ. It magnifies his glory. Judas's dark plot becomes the stage upon which the glory of Christ is revealed and manifested. Remember, in John's Gospel, Jesus is lifted up to glory at the cross. It's at the cross that the Son of God most clearly reveals His identity. When Jesus hangs on that cursed tree, despised and shamed by the world, at that moment, His glory is shining most radiantly. And that's precisely where Judas' dark act leads. It leads Jesus to the glory of the cross. The conclusion is inescapable, if not mind-boggling. Even the darkest night cannot blot out the light of the world. Indeed, the light of the world is so bright, he outshines the darkness that intends to stop him. Judas believed that his betrayal would derail God's plan, but the opposite occurred. It fulfilled God's plan. Satan believed that Judas's scheme would undermine the revelation of God's glory, and the thing that Satan hates most, the glory of God, is revealed most clearly by an act that Satan himself participated in. The only conclusion here is to stop and to say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, who would ordain and orchestrate and plan something such as this, that God would use darkness to magnify the glory of his Son. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
And in this profound truth, in this profound connection between darkness and glory, there is a call to faith. There's a call to faith. Think of how this ought to strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. Even the worst darkness in human history did not stop God's purpose, but rather fulfilled it. Therefore, don't miss the therefore. Therefore, we must not fear when the world appears to stand against God's purpose of glorifying His Son. We must not wring our hands in despair, thinking that God's glory will not come to pass. This moment in John 13 teaches us that Christ's glory is so much more than earthly triumph and worldly greatness and visible success. Christ's glory is the unstoppable plan of history. And that means we can entrust ourselves to God even when it's dark. Do you see it? It's a call to faith. No cultural change, no global conflict, no economic downturn, no disappointing election, no satanic scheme will ever prevent God from fulfilling His plan for His Son. And so we trust Him. We trust Him. Rather than fear when darkness rises, we entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus, knowing that His glory is deeper than triumph. His glory is more enduring than success. His glory is brighter than darkness. His glory is the cross, that moment of apparent shame. And it stands there, friends, as this reminder and this call to trust God even when things are dark. That's perspective number one. That's perspective number one. It's a call to faith. That takes us right into the second perspective on glory. This time from verses 32 to 38. Judas has gone out into the night, which means Jesus' time on earth is now very short. Soon he will depart, and he now prepares his disciples for how they ought to live in his absence. This is perspective number two. Christ's glory is proclaimed through sacrificial love. It's magnified through darkness, and Christ's glory is proclaimed through sacrificial love. Jesus' attention is very much on his impending departure. The time has come for Jesus to glorify the Father by being obedient to the point of death. Look at verse 31 into verse 32. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, That's some pretty deep Trinitarian thinking on Jesus' part. The key key point is that the Son glorifies the Father through His obedience. And the Father glorifies the Son for His obedience. So think of the Apostle Paul's very famous words in Philippians chapter 2. How the Son humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And therefore God has highly exalted Him and giving Him the name that is above every name. Paul's point was that Jesus' obedience reveals Him to be the Son of God. And through that obedience, God the Father exalts Him as the Son over all things. That's the same thing that John is recording here in chapter 13. There's a mutual commitment to glory between the Son and the Father. They are committed to the glory of one another. 
The Son glorifies the Father through obedience to the cross. And following the cross, the Father glorifies the Son by receiving Him again into glory. This is why Jesus can pray in just a few chapters in John 17, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So that's what's going on in verses 31 and 32. It's this Trinitarian work of giving and receiving glory. And it hinges on the cross where the Son obeys the Father to the end. But practically speaking, that means that Jesus is going to leave soon. To receive his glory, the Son has to depart. He has to go back to the Father's presence. And the disciples cannot follow him at this point. Notice verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus knows his time is short. He's going again to the Father to receive the glory that is due only to him as the Son. That's what Jesus means when he says that the disciples cannot come with him. The disciples will not suffer on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for sin. The disciples will not fulfill the promise of God to redeem his people. Only Jesus suffers in that way. Only Jesus will die as the substitutionary atoning lamb of God. And that means only Jesus can enter glory with God as God. Only Jesus can do that. Of course, the disciples will one day enter glory too. The next chapter, John 14, explains with great encouragement how Jesus goes ahead of his disciples to prepare a place for them. So verse 33 does not mean that the disciples will be excluded from the presence of God. Rather, verse 33 means that only Jesus can enter God's presence to receive God's glory as God. Only Jesus can go that route. Only Jesus can do that because only Jesus is the Son of God. Now, all of this, all of this Trinitarian thinking about heavenly glory raises a rather earthly question. How should the disciples live once Jesus is gone? If Jesus goes to receive glory, then how do the disciples make that glory known while he's away? How should they live? Notice Jesus' answer, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. If we're honest, this seems like a rather basic point from Jesus, doesn't it? It seems like a rather ho-hum climax to all of the glory talk. I mean, we just finished this lofty discussion of God's Trinitarian nature, how he's committed to glorifying himself within himself, and the application is for us to love each other? I mean, Jesus says that it's a new commandment, but the Old Testament taught this same basic thing. Deuteronomy 6, love God. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. So again, if we're just being honest, and I hope that we're honest when we read the Bible, if we're being honest... This seems almost too, too basic, too beginner to make it much of a difference. So what are we missing? The answer, friends, is that we're missing the proclamation aspect of love. We're missing the proclamation. 
This kind of Christian love, in verse 34, is a testimony to the world. Now, you've got to follow Jesus with me for a minute to see how this connects. So, so just, just follow me through the Lord's thinking here. Notice in verse 34 that he says this commandment is new. Well, we just, we just said that the Old Testament called God's people to love one another. So what's new here? What's new about verse 34? Look at the last phrase. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you are to love one another. That's the newness of verse 34. In faithfulness to his father, Jesus laid down his life for his people. And now his people are to follow in his example and love in the same way. Not in the atoning sacrifice kind of way, but in the sacrificial love kind of way. And this kind of love, this kind of love is a testimony to the world. When Christians love one another as Jesus loved them, we picture for the world the love of God that saved us. Or to say it a different way, when Christians love one another in this way, we testify to that Trinitarian glory that Jesus was just describing. Just as the Son of God did not insist on His own glory but laid it aside to love His Father, so also Christians do not insist on their own way but lay down their interest to love others. And just as the Father did not hold on to glory for Himself, but instead bestowed glory on His Son, so also Christians do not grasp everything as their own, but give away their lives for the good of others. You see, Christian love pictures that Trinitarian commitment to, within God to love Himself. That's what makes Christian love Christian. It pictures, even in a small way, the love that God has within himself for us. It's a testimony. Someone is surely thinking that I am overstating the power of this kind of love. If you think that I'm making too big of a deal out of loving one another and minimizing things like preaching the truth, then Jesus would like to have a word with you in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, Jesus says. By what? By this kind of sacrificial love. By this kind of sacrificial love, the world sees who belongs to Jesus. So to put it very strongly, Christian love preaches. Of course, I don't mean that we can skip the proclamation of the gospel in favor of loving one another, but I do want us to take seriously what Jesus says. By love for one another, the world will know that we belong to Christ. Here's a good exercise. What does he not say in verse 35? Not by the words we say, but by the love we show. Not by the right doctrine we purport to uphold, but by the love we display. Not by the principled stands we take against the world, but by the love we exhibit towards one another. Do we need preaching? Yes. Do we need doctrine? Absolutely. Do we need principles that we will stand up for no matter the cost? Yes and amen. But without love, all of those things are just noise in the end. Without love, every sermon is hot air. 
Every doctrine is arid knowledge, and every principled stand is an exercise in self-promotion. By this, Jesus says, by this love for one another, we proclaim to the world the glory of Christ, the glory of the God who took on flesh and loved his Father by loving us to the cross. Does this seem like a risky way to live to you? I think it is. Isn't love too weak to make any difference in a world so dark and opposed to God? I had somebody say to me once, the problem with you Christians is you keep preaching love while the world runs over you. Is there a point to that? Is love too weak to make any difference in a world so dark and opposed to God? Do you have some doubt about Jesus' strategy for making his glory known? If so, then you're in good company because so did Peter. Peter completely ignores Jesus' command and he goes right back to talking about Jesus' departure. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter completely ignores the command. Peter assumes that he knows better than Jesus. So rather than obey Jesus' command, Peter wants to talk more about where Jesus is going. In Peter's mind, now is not the time for this sacrificial love talk, Jesus. Now is the time for special insight. Let us in on the secret. Where are you going? And even after Jesus patiently redirects him, Peter persists in being ignorant. Look at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. We're getting to the heart of Peter's problem, and and it again has to do with misplaced glory. Peter makes two massive mistakes in verse 37. Please follow me through this part of the sermon. This This is the payoff. Peter makes two massive mistakes. For one, Peter thinks his sacrifice will save Jesus. Why are you talking about betrayal, Jesus? I won't let anyone betray you. I will die for you. Peter believes that his zeal and his commitment will save Jesus. But in reality, it's the other way around, isn't it? Peter doesn't save Jesus. Jesus saves Peter. That's what Peter misses at this point. He doesn't see his need for a savior. He doesn't recognize that the mission rests on Jesus' sacrifice, not his. That's Peter's first mistake. And it's driven by his second mistake, which is that he operates in terms of worldly glory. Peter operates in terms of worldly glory. Think about Peter's boast. I will die for you, Jesus. That sounds like the kind of glory that we celebrate, doesn't it? Sacrifice on center stage, triumph at great personal costs. It's full of bravado and swagger and all of this false assurance of strength. I mean, Jesus even points this out in verse 38, the next verse. When the darkness takes hold, Peter won't die for Jesus. He won't even admit that he knows Jesus. But Peter hasn't failed yet. Right now, right now, all that Peter can see is his name enshrined in glory. The man who saved the Messiah. I'll die for you, Jesus, Peter boasts. But in this boast, what has Peter missed? He has missed the glory of Christ's love. How does Jesus receive glory? He lays down his life for his people. 
How is that glory made known? By disciples who love one another in the same way. That's the true glory that Peter misses. Peter boasts of his willingness to die, and Jesus wants him to display the willingness to love. I wonder how often we fall prey to Peter's mistake. Shaped by the world's view of glory, we spend all of our lives looking for ways to prove our zeal. We spend our time looking for ways to prove that our courage is deeper than the next guy's. We falsely believe that devotion to Christ will be clearly displayed in some principled grandstand of personal sacrifice that enshrines our name in glory. Look at that guy. Look at what he did. And in reality, we're just like Peter. In all of our boasting, we miss what Jesus really wants us to do. The quiet, humble work of loving people in the way that he loved us. How does the world see that we're disciples of Christ? Not by our names on the marquee with Jesus's, but by our love for one another. I wonder how often we make Peter's mistake. When we read the Bible, it reads us. If John's book of glory begins in a strange way, that's because our views of glory are shaped more by the world than by the gospel. In reality, the book of glory begins with exactly the lesson that we all need. How does John 13 start? Not with Jesus charging into Jerusalem at the head of an army, but with Jesus robed in a towel, loving his disciples to the end. That's glory. That's glory. And that's what we're called to both display and proclaim. So our prayer as we close today is very simple. That God would make the gospel the testimony of our lips. And that he would make love the testimony of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, please bear fruit by your Holy Spirit right now in each of our hearts and in your church, to the glory of God. We are not as strong as we think we are. Our hearts are pulled after the world far more often than what we would ever admit. Help us, God. Help us now to lay down our boasting and our self-aggrandized views of making much of our courage, our commitment. Help us, Father, to take up the quiet, humble work of loving your people as you have loved us. Help us, Father, to be shaped by the cross more than by the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.